Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. This show marks our 50th episode, which is a special milestone for us and has us reflecting over the many lessons we've learned along the way. In the past year plus, we've had conversations with leaders and innovators in product management, marketing, design, across the startup world. But above all, the goal of those conversations has been about helping you, our listeners, create better and more successful products and perhaps making your jobs easier along the way too. In the next half hour, you'll hear from some of our favorite guests as they share stories about how they've navigated their own niche in the product development cycle. Together, they'll tell a story of how to identify the job that your product does or will do, design and build an effective solution, market it, onboard users, and when it's even time to start over again. Hopefully, the arc of their insights will help make you, your users, and your startup more successful in the long run. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Listeners of the podcast or longtime readers of our Inside Intercom blog will know that we're big proponents of the jobs-to-be-done framework, the idea that a successful product is one that's built around mechanisms of value. What problem are you solving for your customers, and why does it matter? Bob Molesta, president and CEO of the Rewired Group, is one of the principal thinkers behind this framework for innovation. He joins our chief strategy officer, Des Trainer, to explain how to apply this theory to products that, put simply, don't yet exist. The way that I come at it is that there's actually no new consumption and that they're already getting the job done one way or another through a, maybe a different category or through wanting to try something. And so part of it is we do quite a bit of this kind of work, which is to help people find the, the analogous categories or products or situations where people are trying to make progress, but they can't and that where your, your technology would fit into it. And so part of it is figuring out what other um, industries to look at. So we did some work for somebody who was doing a home health care product, and it doesn't exist. And at the end, it was like, well, why did somebody buy First Alert? And why did somebody buy a, a rent a home health care person to come in and see their parents? And if we understood those contexts because they're trying to fit into those kinds of situations, we can look at a pretty broad spectrum of other things and still the direction of progress and and the context wrapped around that progress is literally the same that we can then say, all right, based on our technology now, what are the trade-offs we're willing to make? When you say there's no new consumption, how how does that gel with the idea that say like something like say Snapchat has appeared in the past five six years and people are now using it? Are you implying that they always switch from something? They always switch from something. So my thing is that if if I looked at and mapped a day of a kid five years ago before Snapchat, it was either Facebook or it was it was Twitter, it was something else, or they were doing something else, or they were doing nothing. But the reality is, is that there's no more time in the world. They can't create time, and so they're they're choosing now to do Snapchat and not something else. And this is where it looks like it's, it's almost like micro-consumption, but the reality is they are not doing something else. And it's really about, it's part of the, the, the part of jobs is to understand what are they firing and what are they stopping doing and do they want to stop doing it or do they actually miss it? Right, that, that makes sense. And then when you, when you hear about like, you know, emerging industries, so like a popular one at the moment in the Valley is like this idea of customer success. Do you, would you then posit also that people are switching to customer success from something else that they, they thought did the same job? from either either CRM or they, they had some other way in which they were looking at it and now they're switching, quote, platforms. And so it's to me, there's a great book called How to Fly a Horse and it talks about the evolution of innovation and that innovation is really about creation and creating things. And it's the hard work and the, and the fact that, like, 
all things are really just evolutions of another and how do we understand it? And though the business might call it a new category and the industry might call it a new category because of investment and that uh, most categories are created because the, the returns are different and the investment criteria are different. But the reality is, is that from the consumer side, it doesn't work that way. At Intercom, jobs to be done informs everything we do, and that begins with product design. A user's experience has become the last line in what truly makes a great product. And there's perhaps no one in this field more admired today than Facebook VP of product design, Julie Zhu. In the past 10 years, she's had a hand in designing your newsfeed, the way you like and react to posts, how you share photos, and more. And she's inspired a whole generation of young experienced designers through her posts on Medium. So what makes for a great product design? Here's Julie's take. I would say that, you know, I do think that the holy grail of good design is experience that's, you know, useful, easy to use and accessible and enjoyable. And consider something really, really well designed. It's going to kind of check all of those boxes. But I do think that there is this kind of hierarchy or this pyramid of how you look at it, right? Because I don't think people use stuff even if it's easy to use and enjoyable, unless it's useful to them. Right. But I think that, you know, um, a lot of times when you have multiple products or services that fulfill that useful need, then the next thing you look at is, okay, great, which one is, is easier or more accessible to me? You know, um, which one's like kind of either cheaper if you're talking about price or it's just like, you know, I can get this thing that I need to do faster. So I've got all these products. They, they all fulfill, you know, this use case. They're all quite accessible and easy. And um, now how do I differentiate? And the, I think the way that people then differentiate is how it makes them feel. And I think that maybe if you look at clothing or fashion, that's maybe the best you know, example. So, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, right? Like we you know, looked at clothing simply as um, a function of usefulness. Like I need fur to keep me warm in the winter, you know, yeah. and and as time passed, it's like, great, you know, now I've got lots of things that keep me warm in the winter. So, you know, um, what's what's easier, you know, like what's easier for me to access? Is it like cotton? Is it, you know, whatever, uh, you know, what's, what's cheaper, et cetera. And now I think you get to this market where how most people pick their fashion is is usually a factor of like cost and then the style. Like we spend a lot of time thinking about all of these different brands. And it's like, if I wear this, how is that going to make me feel? How is that going to make me look? And I actually think fashion is, is much more at this point, the competition is around that highest rung, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, you know, or the, the top two runs. It's, it's less and less about like, you know, I have to get this thing because it's the only thing that is going to make me feel warm and uh, fulfill its functionality. And so I do think that as products evolve and as our technologies become better and as it's just easier to have have more different competitive products in the marketplace, the competition just moves higher and higher up in that pyramid. This is Inside Intercom. One of the most difficult things for any startup, regardless of how well your product's designed, is how do you price that product? Rule number one, as far as we're concerned here at Intercom, is simply charge something, put value on your product. But what comes next? Trello CEO Michael Pryor knows a thing or two about this. After all, his company was just acquired by Atlassian for $425 million. He joins us to share how he figured it out. Well, we were, we were solely focused on the product at that time, and we were trying to build out the product. We were making, taking the profits from Fogbugs. Trello was still inside Fog Creek, so right. we were investing in ourselves, basically, you can think of it as we did the seed round. Yeah. Um, and so we weren't too worried about the monetization. We knew that that was going to come, but we, we started to see people were afraid to use Trello because they were like, there's no way to pay for it. Right. They're just going to shut down. 
And we were like, oh, we're not charging people and that's friction? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we need to, you know, like put down a dirt road for people to see how, the, how this is going to happen and we can go pave it and put down the superhighway later. But just give them, uh, you know, a quick way to see how we're going to do this. And we started arguing about the pricing. You know, it's a collaboration tool. Can you charge per user? That kind of inhibits the... So we went around and around and Joel just finally said, look, it doesn't matter. We just need to pick something. So mm -hmm. we should just do this flat rate thing because people will just pay for it. And he was right. People just paid for it. Yeah. And the thing was that it was a good solution for that moment in time. Mm -hmm. We left it for way too long right. before coming back to it. Um, and I think that was the problem. And the thing that we settled on was per user pricing eventually because that was just understood by a lot of people. We weren't going to invent a funky pricing scheme based on the number of boards or lists or cards. Yeah. You know, it was just you wanted to align your, your, your pricing with the value that you gave people. And, you know, at bigger companies, they paid more. And at smaller companies, they paid less. So, and I think that's one axis that we have. And we have different plans. If you're just a solo user, you can use Trello Gold, which is, you know, for, for super fans of Trello, but for business type use is business class for large organizations. We have enterprise um, version of Trello that has, you know, enterprise type features. Yeah. And then in the future, when I was talking about powers before, I could see a world in which, you know, you're, you're basically solving a very specific use case with a board by turning on a couple of power ups and essentially, you know, turning Trello into a CRM, you know, for a lightweight CRM, or maybe it's a lightweight applicant tracking system. And there's a power up that does that. And maybe you pay extra for that. So there's, I think there's a lot of different axes that we can do. And we're, we're experimenting with that and learning. Would you consider some sort of revenue share with, with power up developers? Or is that on the, in your plans? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm open to that. There's already people building tools on top of Trello and charging for those tools. We don't collect the money, but they, mm -hmm. you know, people pay through their own, they go to the other website and sign up for that. Uh, but so I already, I already see a market for that kind of thing. And it would be nice to uh, provide that place for, to, so that it would be much easier for people to collect the money. If you could roll back and have this pricing plan from the start, would you do it? I, I don't know that I would have done the flat rate thing. I would have skipped that, you know, and, and we've we've raised our price a couple of times and, and sort of learned things. We also did a thing that Slack did called, we call it smart billing. I think they call it fair billing where it's like if you're not using the product, we stopped charging you for the person, like automatically. Yeah. Certainly you can always go in and deactivate people. But, you know, we did that a year ago and it's been a burden. Um, right. It just makes our recurring revenue look really weird. Yeah. Um, and, and people get all these, you know, four cent charges or four cent credit. Like it, it just creates a lot of confusion and people are rather just most, it turns out that actually most people don't really care too much about this. I've always thought it's like clever, like to have like, you know, smart billing or fair billing or whatever. It's, it's one way, it's a marketing solution to like a participation tax problem, right? Like it's like, right. And, that uh, was the idea, right? Yeah. Like if you, if you say this to people, then they'll just add everyone in their company yeah. um, and not think about it. But it turns out that I don't see that actually happening in the numbers that much. Yeah. Like I don't, the the benefits, the perceived benefits, the hypothetical benefits that we thought would have happened, we're seeing a lot more costs associated with it instead of the benefits. And yeah, because I, I can imagine there's all sorts of kind of frankly messy complexity in your billing logic there, where you're charging people for like partial prorated months yeah, because they yeah. logged in and clicked yes. the link or something. Yeah, and it's it's very confusing to yeah. them, and it's, yeah. it's confusing to us, and. That's another thing that I think if I went back in time, I probably would yeah. do a bit differently. 
The right product released at the perfect time, appealing price point and all, still needs one key element to succeed, the right approach to marketing. You still have to give buyers a good reason to switch from their current solution and actually choose your product. How does it do the job cheaper, faster, or easier than the competition? As our senior director of marketing, Matt Hodges, explains, it all begins with your story. A very powerful quote that I like to use is that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that comes from Simon Sinek. And I think it's really important to focus on the why, you know, what is the value that you are delivering to customers? And that comes through storytelling. Um, you know, people don't typically come and buy a product just because of the features it has. They, they buy a product because of the value it delivers. So it's really important to think about what is the end-to-end -end story that I need to tell. And you need to make sure that the product that you deliver you can actually show that story. So it's important to start with that at the very beginning because it's going to guide the solution that you build. You should obviously focus on building a solution that solves the problems of your customers and the job stories that your product team has outlined. But if you can't tell a cohesive, compelling story at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard to sell that to people when you actually do take it to market. Is that because they don't understand it or it just won't resonate? Or what makes it hard to sell? Yeah, it it definitely depends on, I guess, the, the magnitude of the thing that you're taking to market or announcing. You know, there are simple features which don't require you to tell a story. There are things that people know that they need. A good example uh, might be like automatically assigning conversations to a particular team or teammate. People know that they need that. You don't really need to tell a story around it. You right. can benefit from telling a story, but people know that they need that particular feature. But when you ship new inventions um, or a completely new take on solving a problem that people have, you do need to tell a story to help people understand why they need it and why your solution is a better approach. Um, so it really, it does depend on the magnitude or the size of the thing right. that you're building. So or like in the case of like rooting or, or like a, uh, those sort of features where people basically want them and I, I kind of, and you're not necessarily changing behavior, you, then you don't need to tell a new story in a sense. It's like, hey, that thing you thought we'd have, we now have it. Or, hey, that thing you thought would work now works. Uh, whereas when you're actually looking to change customer behavior, that's when you kind of need something stronger than just uh, here, this thing is now present in the product. Exactly. You need to convince people why they should invest the time changing their behavior. And as we yeah. know, changing people's behavior is incredibly hard. Right. So you need to convince them that, hey, the way that you've been doing things, it's either wrong or it's actually not the best way that you could be doing it. So that's where storytelling is important to a, capture their attention and encourage them to invest time in learning more. How does it work when like, you have a concept of a story and you're trying to keep that, I guess, consistent while also developing the product? Obviously, product development is not linear. Like, you, know, you learn the information, you adapt, you change things, you scope in more stuff, you scope out some stuff. Are you constantly rewriting the press release or do you try to minimize that or what's going on there? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's important to uh, define what we mean by the story. And there's, there's two different stories in my mind. There's the story that for your bigger announcements or your entirely new products that you're taking to market, there's the story that the media and the press are going to latch onto. And there's this particular story or a narrative that they're going to find interesting and they're going to want to write about. But then there's the story that you're actually going to tell the people who are going to buy this thing. And that's what you should be focused on from the very beginning. And uh, at Intercom, you know, we're fortunate to have a pretty good process in place as it comes to building product. And everything that we build starts with what we call an intermission, which is our quirky name for a project brief. Um, and its goal is to give the product team and, and in our case, the marketing team a shared understanding of what we're building and why. And more recently, we've started to inject marketing into that process. So in that intermission, we have a section that talks about the story that we want to tell once we have built a solution. 
And the reason for that is we want to have alignment between the product team and the marketing team such that throughout the development process, we can constantly check as we're designing the solution and making decisions around scope about what stays in or what needs to get dropped in order to meet a specific deadline. If we have one, we can revisit and make sure that we're not breaking the story that we want to tell, which is communicating that value that are going to help people understand why they should buy your product. So I think it's important to you know separate the press angle from the actual story that you want to tell to your customers and your prospective customers. And in order to get there, it's important that you have a really strong understanding of the competitive landscape. So before you can even write your story, you need to have a strong understanding of what problem you're solving and why. And our product team does a great job of understanding that by talking to our customers. But you also want to look at other solutions that might solve that problem or might have a a product that could be hired for that particular job that needs to get done. So you'll want to go ahead and conduct a really in-depth competitive analysis based on who you know you're competing against. You want to look at who else has it? How do they describe it? How do they position it? How does it work? And then from that, you can start to form opinions on where do we win and where do we lose? And from that analysis, what you're going to walk away with is hopefully a set of unique selling points that are going to help you formulate that story and that pitch that you're going to want to tell when you do take it to market. If you're able to successfully sell your product and its story, there's only one thing that literally all of your users will do once they're inside, onboarding. It's a concept that's more than tooltips and checklists. Successful onboarding is an outcome, successful users, and no one knows this better than Samuel Hulick. A UX designer by trade, Samuel's the pin behind useronboard.com, where he regularly publishes onboarding teardowns of everything from Apple Music to Instagram. In an interview with our own Jeffrey Keating, he explains that some of the best onboarding lessons, though, can actually be found outside of the software world. A lot of times when you're creating software, it's less of a tool and more of an, an environment for accomplishment or an environment for activity. And anytime you design an environment, it's going to have a natural uh, getting started process where people are entering into it and figuring out what it is that they need to be doing and how. And so um, one of the best examples that I use that's kind of like IRL onboarding is um, a lot of times I will look to get out of town and I'll rent a cabin on Airbnb. And when I arrive, maybe I'll have service for my phone or maybe not. Uh, how easy is it to find where the key is or the key code is located? If I do get that in, can I find how to turn on the lights and the heat? Do I know how to access the internet? Is that very clear? You know, if it comes with like a sauna, do I know how to turn that on or not? And a lot of times you'll find that the hosts have clearly anticipated all of the questions that someone might have upon entering the environment of their house and everything is laid out right where someone would most intuitively uh, encounter it. And other times it's a complete nightmare where you have to like find like this one scrap of paper that's hidden underneath a shelf or whatever. And so uh, in that way, I would say it's, it's a very similar process where you're, you're looking to transition people into the mode of life that they were uh, hoping to receive when, when they decided to pull the trigger on it. And sometimes you can do that really reliably. And other times, uh, if you don't pay a lot of attention to it, it becomes painfully obvious. And I think that's probably maybe the challenge for some of these on-demand companies that I think so much is probably out of your control. It's a two-sided marketplace, obviously. So how do companies like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, as you mentioned, how do they design around that? Uh, well, I would say that largely that's the design responsibility is as is as local as the control is. And so, um, you know, if a host wants to get good ratings and get more people to come and have more positive reviews, they can approach it in a conscious and considerate and hospitality oriented way. Um, and if they don't 
decide to do that, then they will suffer whatever kind of, you know, consequences the marketplace will determine based off of that. And so uh, I, I can imagine that being a concern for Uber or Lyft or Airbnb, but at the same time, uh, what they're creating is a larger system that hopefully has some self-regulation to it. So um, to my mind, the parallel between the two is is more of like, in the if you can understand what uh, the value of an Airbnb host taking an approach that's really hospitality driven and you can see how the benefits would result in not only to use kind of a gross term like customer satisfaction, but also just on the the bottom line revenue of how well your business is doing. And then, you know, extend that to software. To my mind, those are really kind of a one to one um, comparison to make. Do you think we can learn anything from industries outside software? So I know slot machines and video games are two examples of industries well adapt to user onboarding and retention. Do you think we can learn anything from them? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, in both cases, those have been very influential in, in my study of user onboarding and the research that I've done in my own life. In the video games example, they've been around arguably longer, at least in the mainstream, than, than you know, SaaS software has been. And in a lot of ways, the getting started experience is a little bit more mature and articulated in that medium where there are things like first level design and tutorials that are part of games and things like that. And so I've, I've been able to draw from a really rich pool there as far as insights and inspiration and just kind of having years of working to figure out what works and what doesn't. And then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, slot machines or casinos in general, there's an amazing, amazing book by a woman named Natasha Dow Shul called Addiction by Design. And if you look at casino floor layouts and their climate control and the the lack of clocks and of course things like slot machines or you know even outside of casinos things like free-to-play games like Candy Crush or things along those lines uh, those have really gotten people's brain chemistry figured out and has really turned addiction to a science and it's uh it's regrettable in, in, in a lot of ways as far as the predatory and kind of Machiavellian practices that they employ. But at the same time, what they're learning can also just as easily be used in service of helping people become successful. And so I would certainly say that ignorance is not something that is to your benefit. So learning the tools that people who maybe have more questionable uh, ethics uh, are using is something that can be helpful so long as you're kind of following your own Hippocratic oath, whatever that may be. As your users become successful, the hope, of course, is they'll spread word of your product and ultimately your customer base will grow. But a major side effect of scale is a stretch support team one who struggles to keep up with feature requests, bug reports, and customer contacts. If your support team struggles to keep up, they're missing one of the key value props to good support, that all these contacts and requests can actually be used to improve your product itself. That simple feedback loop, however, is easier said than done. Sarah Hatter, author of the Customer Support Handbook and founder of the consultancy firm CoSupport, explains how to make it happen. Startup founders, like, you know, mid-market, mid-level companies, this is, this is my favorite audience because they really get it. They have the most risk. They have the most on the line if it's something doesn't work out. So they're the ones who are trying to figure out how do we create the best experience possible to gain those loyal customers that continue to pay us money, especially like service, you know, software services. Someone's got to pay me $49 every month. How do I convince them to keep doing that? And we got a lot of really bad advice when apps were launching, when people were coming on doing software as a service, you know, 10, 15 years ago for the first time, there was a lot of the designers, right? 
you know, if someone wants this future, we're going to say, no, we don't like that future, so we're not doing it. You don't need it. We're going to retrain people how to work based on the constraints of our product. And everyone got really, yeah, you know, the engineer's right, the designer's right, for like, like, a, like a good five years. <laughs> All of these companies started failing. And they're not failing because they said no to feature requests. They're not failing because they didn't improve based on, you know, user insights. But they failed because of their, their core belief was that the customer insight and experience didn't matter as much as what the designer wanted to matter. Mm. So when we, you know, when I speak at conferences, I'm primarily speaking to people in that startup founder, you know, micropreneur kind of single founder stage. And I'm convincing them, look, you know, you get someone on the front lines who's empathetic, who's understanding, who's uh, really intuitive about people's needs, and they're keeping track of every single request and words that are being used or the tone that's coming across from customers. They're keeping track of every bug report, every, you know, feature request, especially is a big thing that a lot of people tend to ignore. They don't think it's relevant in early stage life. But I think it is because if you have the right person on the front lines, they're triaging up to your product people this is a trajectory for us to acquire more users and make more money. At the end of the day, that's all it is. It's not feature bloat. People are very scared when they hear, listen to feature requests. They're like, well, then we're just promising that we're going to build everything. And then we have feature bloat and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's like my cartoon boardroom version of a startup founder's voice. Right? <laughs> but yeah, I don't think that's what that means. I think that if you're proving to people like, your experience with this product matters. Your experience using, you know, every single button that you click becomes a habitual part of your day. This mm. isn't just a transactional experience that we have, like, you know, the Mitch Hedberg joke with, like, the donut. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't need a receipt for a donut. It's like, I get, you give me the donut, I give you the end of transaction. That's not what we want to build. If you want yeah. to build that way, then you can go work for Samsung or you can go work for, you know, whomever. But if you really want to build a company and a brand and a product that lasts and impacts people's lives, makes their lives easier and makes them loyal to you for 10 plus years down the line, you have to come at this idea of how we build the product, building it with that empathy, with the customer in mind really does matter because at the end of that, the end game is we make more money, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. I've never, ever, ever told somebody to listen to people and kindly reference and track feature requests and talk about it with product who said, I went bankrupt because of that. <laughs> and you're not just building exactly what the customer's wanting. You're asking them, why do you want that? Exactly. And sort of using that to guide. And uh, that is like when I talk about hiring people who have that intuition, you know, mm -hmm. I talk about this a lot because I'm really anti-phone support. And the reason I'm anti-phone support is because I think it's too emotionally charged. It costs way too much money. People end up offshoring it because they can't, you know, it's so expensive. And so people end up getting this bad experience. But I always say, like, why do people want phone support? Why do they want a telephone number to call? It's not because they want to stay on hold for 15 minutes. It's not because they want to accidentally get cut off. It's not because they want to repeat their problem to four middle managers before they get someone to give them a coupon code. They want to trust you. They want to know that you're a human being who can help them. They want immediate help to meet an immediate need or fix something, right? Mm. So it's like, what is the root cause of someone saying, can you add another checkbox here or a drop down here? Or can I add another user here? What's the use case? Why do you need that? And we may find that that's not actually what we need to build for this person. We need to build a whole other scenario that fits around this subset of users who we could acquire, right? If we just had this extra yeah. feature, this extra scaling capacity.
Feature requests and new ideas for what your product can be and should be will pile up over time, and you're going to say no to almost all of them. But eventually, there is a threshold where things are added and updates are just no longer practical. So when is it time to actually take a step back and consider building a whole new product? We asked someone who knows this better than perhaps anyone else in our industry. That's Basecamp founder Jason Fried, who has released two new ground-up versions of his flagship product since 2004. Here he is with our own Des Trainer. It's averaged out so far to about every four years or so. We, we do a major new release, ground up, like you said. Um, and we do that because uh, at a certain point, you, you, you sort of um, achieve, I guess they call it a local maximum, where you're, you're able to iterate as much as you possibly can on the current, let's call it a current chassis. Like for take, let's, let's think about it like a car. Um, Cars, cars have generations. Like you have the Porsche 911, which has been around for 50 years. You have the Honda Accord, which has been around for 40 years, I think. This is a, an idea about what a specific kind of car is. But every some odd years, five, six, seven years, there's a new chassis, a new engine, a new idea, uh, which they start over from scratch. But it still follows the same pattern. And what happens is that you can't optimize certain things beyond a certain point. So if you want to bring brand new ideas to bear if you want to if you want to try something radically new still with the same spirit of the original but in a different way you can't optimize your way there you can't iterate your way there i i don't believe at least i think at some point you need to start over and then you're able to do things that you couldn't do before because we all carry products carry legacy just like companies carry legacy and at a certain point it's very very hard to shed legacy so you have to sort of jettison it and start over what we do, though, which is different than most companies, pretty much every other company out there, is that we don't force our customers to upgrade to the newest version, the newest major version. We're, of course, releasing iterations for years as we go on the existing version. But when we start a new one, we kind of freeze the previous one in place, continue to support it forever, but don't force people to upgrade. And the reason why is because our schedule is not our customer's schedule. To force people to upgrade you know, people are always in the middle of something. This is the big realization. Everyone's in the middle of something. And the kind of work people do with Basecamp is very critical to their business. It's either project work, it's client work, it's internal important initiative work. And for us to change the furniture on people on our schedule, make everything different, is unfair. So we prefer to say, hey, look, whenever you're ready, if you're ever ready, come on over. But you also never have to make that decision. If you're comfortable with the way things work and you like the way things are, you can stay with that forever. So the initial version of Basecamp that came out in 2004, which we call Basecamp 1 now, we still have a good number of customers on that who will probably be on that for the next 10 years because they're used to it. It does what they need. They've, they've grown up with it and they understand it. And that's fine with us too. Which is pretty impressive. I think I love the phrase until the end of the internet, which is a, a good way to indicate your commitment. What is the decision or the idea that triggers you to start thinking about like the next base camp versus the one you're currently on? We typically have to have enough new ideas that are sort of stacked up that if you can imagine for a moment like a scale of justice, you know, like one of these mm-hmm. old time scales, you've got two things on both sides. Um, the current version is going to be heavier than, the, than this new idea until the new idea becomes heavier than the current version. When, when it starts to flip, when, when the scales flip, basically, that's when you realize we've got enough new stuff here. A new perspective, new ideas, new points of view, new insights. There's enough of a pile of new things that it's time to um, well, first of evaluate, can we make any of those things or can we bring any of those things to the existing version? If we say no to too many of those, like it would be too complicated, it would be too divisive, it would throw off the balance of the product, it would whatever. 
then it's time to think about a new version. And so far through our history, it's been roughly every four-ish years. The first one was eight years, then we did four, then we did three and a half. So it's roughly all together now, 12 years, three versions, about four years. When we come up with something that feels like a collection of new enough ideas that we can't retrofit or don't want to retrofit, and then it's time. This is Inside Intercom. The thing we love about Jason's story and the work he's done at Basecamp is that he's kept a focus on the pieces of his user's job, getting work done, that will absolutely never change. And he's used that as the foundation for each new iteration of his product. To quote our own Des trainer, the things we do in life rarely change, but the way we do them will always change. So zero in on your user's job to be done and use that to guide your product through its development and life cycle. If you like what you've heard in this episode and want to hear more in-depth conversations around product and startups, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast network, maybe shoot us a review, or even share the show with a friend. Catch you next time. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.